Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. Not one person's experience in a game is the same as somebody else's. And I think that's really beautiful because that level of immersion I really do feel is the closest that you can get to experiencing and loving and being part of art. It's Friday, February 3rd, and this is Here and Now, Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, a Grammy-nominated composer on how she scores video games and why she thinks game music deserves more attention. And scientists hope autopsies of stranded whales can help them figure out what's leading to so many deaths on the East Coast and hopefully save some whales. But first, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's a Chinese spy balloon. Secretary of State Antony Blinken postponed a trip to China after the Pentagon said it found a surveillance balloon drifting over Montana. China said it was a civilian weather balloon that strayed off course. But historically speaking, spying with weather balloons has been a common and not particularly sophisticated method of gathering intel. So was China trying to send a message? We called up Here and Now's security analyst, Jim Walsh of MIT, to be our eyes on the sky and help make sense of it all. And he spoke to Peter O'Dowd. So this is a fascinating story that's developing fast. Do you buy what the Chinese government is saying, that this is a weather balloon that drifted off course? Well, probably. I mean, we won't know for sure. But on the face of it, uh, you don't need weather, you don't need balloons to collect intelligence in you know, 2023, our cyber capabilities, satellites, signals intelligence, they all provide a lot more information than you're going to get from a balloon or even from Google for that matter. And so it's, you know, there aren't that many countries that sort of launch spy missions knowing they'll get caught and knowing Mm. once they get caught, they're going to have to publicly admit it was a mistake. Now that's possible. Maybe they're testing us. They're seeing when we would have discovered it or how we respond to it, but probably not. I think, uh, honestly, this is one of those great stories, Peter, that it allows you to hold up a mirror to yourself and and to the U.S. and say, and it says more about us, really, than, Mm. than it does about China. I mean, when I heard it, I, you know, my emotional and logical selves ran to opposite corners of the room. My emotional self was angry and sort of like, what are you doing on our property sort of attitude and insulted mm. and all that. And then logically, I got to thinking about it and I thought, you know, that, that doesn't really add up very much. So I think the logical to, mind won out this time. To that point, exactly. A lot of people are very riled up about this. If you go on social media, you'll see elected officials saying that we should shoot this thing down. But if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying this likely isn't much of a threat at all. I agree. And then, of course, that's the conclusion, excuse me, conclusion of the Defense Department. I mean, uh, we know where it is. We know where it's going. We're tracking it. Unless they've invented some brand new technology that never, no one's ever heard about, I can't imagine it's doing something more than they can get from other sources. So it's, it's, it, but it does reflect, as you say, sort of us, like the China hype club did not waste any time going on Twitter and screaming about the Chinese threat. And then uh, other politicians went on to blame Biden. I don't know what you're blaming him for, but, you know, you know, just sort of what you would expect, sort of sad, predictable political response on all the parties' uh, parts. But the internet, I got to say, this is one 
situation where I'm reminded of the joys of the internet because the memes and the <laughs> jokes we're seeing are just spectacular. But I mean, but seriously, though, there are some sensitive missile locations in that part of the country in Montana. What could the Chinese be looking for? Well, as I said, I don't think it's that uh, if, I, if I'm guessing here and coming up with alternative hypotheses, my guess is not that they have some high tech technology that can penetrate in ways that have never been done before so that they have an advantage by using a balloon rather than another Over platform. Over a satellite, Right. I mean, at the end of the day, they're all unmanned aerial vehicles, right? They're sort of, today, our version really, the much more popular version is the drone, something that sits in the air and takes pictures. So while balloons, military balloons, have gotten a lot better over years because of improvements in material science, other technologies have sort of outstripped them because they're just, they're just better at it. But again, if they did it and there was a, a malign purpose, it might be to test when we would detect it, to test how we respond to it, to what we, the countermeasures we take if it flies over a sensitive facility. So that they can observe us reacting to it. But again, you know, you have to get up and publicly say that you messed up and sorry, my bad, even if that's not the case. It's not something the Chinese, I think, want to do. But uh, it, it definitely just got briefly, people Jim, riled up. It sure did. But just briefly, what is the history of using this type of aircraft or any sort of surveillance vehicle um, to spy on other countries. Oh, yeah, that happens uh, all, uh, has happened historically all the time. The balloon was invented in the late 1780s by a pair of Frenchmen, and ever since it has been used not only for weather and science and, uh, you know, popular entertainment, but for military uses, for dropping bombs, for surveillance. It was used, uh, balloons were used in the Civil War. They were used, uh, no, they weren't used in the, uh, yeah, yes, they were used in the Civil War. I believe they, they were. were. Yeah, I think used they in World War II, Japanese used them. So they're not, uh, and they're continued to use today for weather and various scientific applications. And as I say, they've gotten a lot better because the materials you make them with, you know, there was mylar and then there's something else and then something else. It's all gotten better over time, but is it better than a satellite? Probably not. I've got just about a minute left here. We just saw uh, Secretary Blinken call off his meeting with Xi Jinping. So, you know, whether this is a threat or not, what does it mean for this ever souring relationship between the United States and China? It's just one thing after another. And you one worries that it, for reasons great and small, this being small, that it continues down a path where people feel like a, a confrontation is inevitable. That That would be a mistake. They're a big, great power, not as powerful as us, but they're big and we're big and we our economies depend on each other. We shouldn't you know, be sort of leaning into uh, the possibility of conflict. But when everyone starts calling each other names and preparing for a conflict in the future they think is going to happen, then that can put you on that path, whether you're supposed to be on that path or not. So I do think we have to be cautious with the hype, with the exaggerations, but also realize that they're a competitor and we have different interests. So we got to compete and we have to cooperate when sometimes the only way to solve a problem is when you cooperate with a country you don't mm -hmm. like. Here and now, security analyst Jim Walsh. Jim, thanks for putting this into context for us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Peter. Coming up next, a rash of whale deaths along the Atlantic coast is worrying marine biologists. Scott Tong asks a scientist what's going on after the break. Okay, listen carefully.
That's a humpback whale whose sound was part of an album aptly named Songs of the Humpback Whale. At least seven humpbacks were found stranded or beached on the East Coast last month. And that's a lot. Last year's rate was fewer than two per month. The endangered North Atlantic right whales have also been dying at a higher rate over the past seven years. So what's happening? We have marine biologist Juke Robbins on the line. She studies humpback whales at the Center for Coastal Studies in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Juke, hello. Hi. What do we know about this spike in humpback whale strandings? We're seeing many of them off of New York and New Jersey. So this is part of a larger event, or what we call an unusual mortality event. It's really been going on since 2016, and it's actually coastwide. But what's been happening in the past month, we've seen a bit more in the New York, New Jersey area. When we see these things, is it often the human footprint in general? Ships crashing into whales, whales getting stuck in fishing nets, traps? Yeah, those are the two primary known causes of injury and death to large whales. Okay. And in these cases, are, are, are we still trying to understand? Does it take a while to learn the exact cause of death? Yeah, it does, because those two causes are a bit more obvious once the carcass is able to be examined, but a bunch of other samples are collected at the same time. The team of people that courageously goes out on the beach, you know, it's a huge job. They're looking at all the organs, they're looking at the bones, they're collecting samples. And so they get a sense right then, sometimes, sometimes they don't, but then the samples have to go for confirmation to laboratories. Now, a number of politicians, a number of opponents of the offshore wind industry have blamed offshore wind farms in the Atlantic for this. The federal government has said there is no evidence linking wind energy to these deaths How should we think about what no evidence means? Does it mean debunked? No. And I think the Stranding Network, NOAA, everybody is trying to um, get as much data as they can about what's happening. Thus far, there isn't evidence for that. And in fact, there are a lot of reasons why it doesn't make that much sense, given that this is a coastwide event. There have been very specific points of evidence of other things like ship strike and entanglement. Generally, how is the humpback whale population in the mid-Atlantic doing? The primary feeding ground for humpback whales in U.S. waters is the area from Massachusetts north to uh, Nova Scotia. We have been seeing over the years more and more whales using the coastline south of that area. So it started with whales turning up primarily in winter off of the U.S. mid-Atlantic states. And now we're seeing increased usage even in summer off of New York and New Jersey. Some of these are whales that are part of our population in the Gulf of Maine, and some of them live somewhere else, and especially the wintertime whales. In terms of how the whales are doing, we've been working on a project with NOAA, actually, uh, the Northeast Fisheries Science Center, to assess uh, the population trends in the Gulf of Maine. And that population is still increasing. It's increasing slowly. And this confusion around which individuals are involved in in this event and what population they belong to so that we can better track it. And it's just an ongoing question. Okay. Okay. And and the the endangered North Atlantic right whale, how are things looking in general right now? Uh, Bleak. It's it's small numbers and it's declining. So that is uh, not a great story. Yeah. As you mentioned, you study humpback whales off the Gulf of Maine, and you've been aware of one particular whale for more than four decades, a 35-foot-long whale 
that tragically this week washed up on Long Island and died. How did you react to this? Well, we've been following him. His name is Luna. We didn't see him as a calf, so we don't know exactly when he was born and exactly his age just yet. So it's a terrible thing to learn of, some, someone you've known for that long and have been studying. The thing that I try to remind myself about is that whales do die. And what actually happens most of the time is that we never see it. Because whatever happened, it happened somewhere far from shore. The carcass was never recovered. And so the folks doing the necropsy did see evidence of what they believe could have been a ship strike, which they're going to assess. It's interesting because they also saw evidence of previous interactions that were not lethal. And we're in the process of linking what they found on the beach to what we've seen in his life, so injuries on his body, um, which will help us understand a lot more about the effects of ship strikes. These events are definitely sad, but in this case, at least there's an opportunity to actually find out what happened, to sort of close the case, but also to collect Mm. information to better understand his life, things that we could never have gotten just from observation or sampling when he was alive. Juka Robbins studies humpback whales at the Center for Coastal Studies in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Juke, thanks so much for the time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Coming up, Scott speaks with a composer who's nominated for a Grammy in a brand new category, Best Score Soundtrack for Video Games and Other Interactive Media. Stick around. The Grammys are this Sunday, and with them, an unusual new category. That would be the category of video game music. What you just heard came from the 2022 Assassin's Creed Valhalla, Dawn of Ragnarok. And for more, we are joined by the game's composer, Stephanie Economou. Stephanie, welcome. And congratulations. Thank you so much. So let's talk about Dawn of Ragnarok. It's the latest episode in the huge Assassin's Creed series. We should say not to be confused with God of War Ragnarok, separate game. But your score, you draw from Scandinavian folk music. And you also draw from heavy metal. Let's take a little bit of listen to that. So, Stephanie, you know, as we listen to this, what were you thinking when you took on this project? How did you kind of come to the sound we just heard? Yeah, what was I thinking? That's a great question. Um, (laughs) Dawn of Ragnarok, when it came into my life, um, I wasn't really sure what the best way of telling this musical story was. It's such an epic. It follows Odin in the search for his son and finding vengeance for his family. And you, your main kind of nemeses in the game are fire giants and ice giants. So I knew that it had to have a scope and scale that was huge and emotional and ultimately very human. So... In my first meetings with the game developers, they said, we're kind of listening to some black metal. And I said, that's very 
interesting. I myself am a fan of heavy metal in general, but I had never really explored the black metal subgenre at that point. So Mm. I thought, okay. So they said that, and then I scurried away and panicked for a moment, but then (laughs) (laughs) regained composure and started listening to a lot of black metal. Um, So I was introduced to someone named Wayne Ingram, who is the guitarist in a band called Wilderun. They are specialists in the black metal genre. They play like cinematic Viking music. They were just like the huge piece to the puzzle of starting the journey for this score. Well, let's take a break and listen for a few seconds to the main theme from Assassin's Creed Valhalla, Dawn of Ragnarok, once again. I'm just curious, how long did it take until you said with your team, we got it? That was kind of my second stab at the main theme. The first theme Mm. that I wrote just ended up living too much in the mystical world. And that wasn't quite the story we were trying to tell. Even if there was mythology, it didn't need to lean into that sort of fantastical feel. And so I picked up the viola and that was one of the first things that I improvised. I wanted it to be lyrical Mm. and long. I wanted there to be yearning in it, but I also wanted it to have the potential to grow and become angry and just expand. You know what? Do you you have the viola with you next to you? Oh, yes. Can you do do a little bit of that? Would you like me to play it? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sure. I will serenade you. Okay. Hope it's in tune. And yeah, it was just a, I mean, I think that's the way that I sort of just write music in general is I pick up an instrument and just play around. And I think that's just the most direct way to sort of experience something and see if it's going to work. Here's how it went. Great. I mean, that is in the final product. Yes. Thank you for playing that for us. Of course. I can hear it. In the soundtrack, do you have a few favorite moments, flourishes, songs that you want to bring up? I listen back to the main theme, and I'm really happy with how that all came together. I got to work with Einar Selvik, who sang vocals on that, and he is kind of the voice of Assassin's Creed. He's sort of the the image of what people hear when they think of Viking. So having his artistry on that track was really, really special. I also still like listening to the track Old Friends and Gentle Jailers, which is the second track on the album. Ari Mason, who's an incredible vocalist who I have known since childhood, sang vocals on that, and she also improvised a lot of things throughout the album. And I just love her performance on that track. I think it's really powerful and wonderful. Mm. I am notoriously just terrible at (laughs) 
acknowledging when I am happy with my own music, but I do always celebrate the performances of the soloists who are on it because I'm just always blown away by the fact that I get to collaborate with such incredible musicians from all over the world. You have composed for video games. You have composed other kinds of music. Is composing video game music different in a way, in many ways? It's different in the sense that in video games, you could have a player exploring or beating a boss for anywhere from four minutes to hours, you know? So the music has to adapt to the fact that from player to player, it's going to be a different experience. So if the player happens upon a tension area or a danger zone, there's a layer that comes in to make them sit on the edge of their seat. There are intensity layers that you have to add on top, depending maybe if you're getting close to beating a boss or something like that. So the music is alive. It's living and breathing. It's ever evolving. You have to be very clever about how you design that music. Maybe you want to pick a tempo where you can do halftime and double time and switch between these feels so that you can get the most out of those sort of energy changes for the audience. How you thought about orchestrating the game experience? What are you trying to get the player to feel? Because as you're describing, this game is a totally immersive experience for the user, yeah? Yeah, not one person's experience in a game is the same as somebody else's. And I think that's really beautiful because you have an impact on the art itself. You're not just consuming um, like you might be with film and television. So that level of immersion I really do feel is the closest that you can get to experiencing and loving and being part of art. What, what I'm hearing you say is this is the player as the creator. Yeah. I certainly feel that way. I think anybody who has a hand in creating a game, whether it be the designers, the art directors, the composers, the sound designers, I think we're creating a world for others to make their own art, to find their own story, to live and breathe in. It's no wonder why games have the reach and the impact that they do. And I think we're seeing now with the advent of a lot of these stories being turned into television and films, I think we're going to see people who maybe didn't grow up playing games or if it's not part of their lives, I think we're going to see them pivoting into playing these games because these narratives have such a wide reach. It's the art and the storytelling that grips people and games allow for this very intimate experience and involvement in that art. In this Grammy category, you are the only woman nominee, and it's in an industry that can be very male-dominated. Is that meaningful to you? I am truly surprised that I am the only woman in that category because there are so many brilliant, influential women and women-identifying composers in video games. Sarah Schachner wrote the music for Assassin's Creed Valhalla, the main game, as well as other Assassin's Creed games. You know, Yoko Shimomura has had a big hand in defining video game music. Hildur Gudnatadir, who's well-known for her film work, also is doing video game music. You know, you have Winifred Phillips, Lena Rain. There are just so many brilliant women voices in the video game music space. So I'm very surprised I'm the only one. I might be the first, but I'm not going to be the last. That's for sure. Mm. Um, but it's still a huge honor to be able to 
be part of this category, especially in its inaugural year. Video game soundtracks, they're already extremely popular, and, and even I, I don't know much about video games. I can recognize a couple. Let's listen to one. Okay, that was just our producer, James, double-checking that Scott Tong knows that one. And yes, the answer is yes, he knows that one. <laughs> Stephanie, um, why do you think game soundtracks should be recognized at the Grammys? Surely some people are asking why. I think video games have been in the zeitgeist for so long, and so many people have loved them. And having video game music recognized as its own category... I think is just validation that us game composers have a purpose and a hand in evolving the musical landscape. I think it means that we have touched people, that we can connect with people all over the world in a very visceral, immersive way. And I think that is certainly deserving of its own category. That is composer and designer Stephanie Ikonomu. She is nominated for a Grammy for her score for Assassin's Creed Valhalla, Dawn of Ragnarok. Congratulations, Stephanie, and thanks for the time. Thank you so much for having me. We've got some full tracks from Stephanie Ekonomu at our website, hereandnow.org. And while you're there, check out our other conversations from today. Our weekly politics roundtable catches you up on what's happening in Washington. We check in on the massive strike happening in the U.K., And we speak with a woman who just completed her goal of visiting all 63 national parks. There's like a meditative state that one can get into, especially in natural places. And I think that it can it can create these transcendent moments that you might need solitude in order to experience. You can hear that conversation and a lot more at hereandnow.org. And this weekend, we've got a bonus episode for you. Robin Young talks to writer Steve Silberman about his friendship with David Crosby, who died last month. They listen back to some of Crosby's music and reflect on everything from Crosby's ability to bring out the best in his collaborators, even while his relationships were complicated, to the wisdom he gained from a life spent making beautiful art. You can find that special episode in the regular Here and Now Anytime podcast feed. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Ashley Locke, Gabrielle Healy, and James Mastro Marino. Our editors are Gabe Bullard, Peter O'Dowd, Jill Ryan, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, everybody. 